Hi, I'm Jen Naughton, and this is Bookish Society Secrets. In case you stumbled upon us, here's the sitch. We give you the inside dish, spoilers included, about the latest and greatest new books for kids and teens. Because I live by the mantra, so many books, so little time, I'm using this corner of the internet to boost authors and their stories. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm chatting with Rebecca Barone, the author of Race to the Bottom of the Earth, Surviving Antarctica. This is a nonfiction title. Woo! Our first one. And I think it's available now, right, Rebecca? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, hi. Welcome. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. No, and believe it or not, this is my first podcast. So, a lot of firsts going on today. Oh, awesome. Well, hopefully it won't be uh, too rough on you. Um, no, I'm very excited to be here. And thanks so much for having me. <laughs> thanks. Um, do you want to tell us like a little synopsis about this? I was going to say the story, this account, this nonfiction event. Sure. So it's actually two nonfiction events. Uh, so race, there are really two races to the bottom of the earth. There are really two with the South Pole. The first one takes place in 1912. So it's a race between Robert Falcon Scott and Roald Amundsen, who are each trying, leading a team of men to be the first to the bottom of the earth, to the South Pole. And it takes them a couple of years. So I think we actually come into the story in about 1910. And there's, their travel takes a lot longer than it does in the 21st century. They have an entirely different strategy than people do in the 21st century. It takes them several years, even once they're in Antarctica, to really uh, set up the race, lay some depots, and then it's the journey from their base camp to the South Pole and see who gets there first and, and um, the journey back home. So that's the 1912, or yeah, the 1912 race. In 2018, so this is 21st century. This is just a few years ago. I mean, this is two and a half years ago when we're recording the podcast right now. There's an American, Colin O'Brady, and an Englishman, Lou Rudd, who each decide to try and be the first to travel, to traverse the continent of Antarctica solo, so all by themselves, unsupported. So no one else is coming in and putting drops of food along the way for them and unaided, which means they're going to take everything that they need and pull it all under their own power. So no dogs helping them, certainly no motors, no sails. Uh, they're pulling their polar sled, which they call a pulk, behind them, and they only use manpower. They only use what their own two legs and, and arms that sometimes can do. Um, so the way these two races parallel each other, the 1912 and the 2018, really make up the crux of this book. And the really interesting thing is that they parallel each other so well. Uh, neither of the races, 1912 or 2018, started out to be a race. So Robert Falcon Scott it had intended to try and make this push to the South Pole. And then Roald Amundsen came in and said, ooh, I'm actually going to race you there. And same way in 2018, Lou Rudd, this Englishman, decided, hey, I'm going to try and make this first, this world record, and be the first guy to do this. And Colin O'Brady came in at the last minute and said, ooh, actually, I'm going to make it a race. And so they have a lot of parallels through that. And one of the fun things that I had with this book is tracing the parallels and then using the, you know, the obvious contrast in the intervening century to just show how much has changed as well. So what inspired you to write this story? 
So I've been fascinated with Antarctica for a long time. It's just, it's so, it's so extreme. It's just, it's cold, you know, it's actually a desert. (laughs) You know, we think about it as like snow and ice and everything, but it's actually a desert. It's so far. It's so cold. It's so extreme. It's so dark. It's so far from anything. It's so inhospitable, but we go there, you know, and, and so Scott and Amundsen were, you know, the first to the South Pole. They're racing to be the first, but they weren't the first people to Antarctica. And it's beautiful. You know, it's just the, the pictures. I've never been lucky enough to go, but it's just a gorgeous continent. It's, it's such a land of contrast. You know, there's, there's no life there, but there's such beauty. So, so I've, I don't know, I'm mostly Wikipedia, just tangentially loved kind of Antarctica for a while. But I've known about the race of the South Pole for a while. But I was actually, I look through the headlines. I, you know, read the newspaper while I'm having lunch. I have small children, so I have lunch during their nap time. And it's a little bit of peace and quiet for me. So I read the newspaper and there was November 3rd, 2018, a headline caught my attention, race through Antarctica. And this is New York Times, you know, the front of their digital section that I'm reading on my mm-hmm. computer. And so uh, the story caught my attention. And honestly, before I was through the article, I knew right then and there that there were just such parallels between 1912 and 2018, how it was unfolding. And I knew that this could be a book, that I was going to write this book. Um, and, you know, and then I got into the research and realized that there was so much there and, and just how much I could do. And, and it kind of, uh, took over my life for a while. So, yeah, I mean, in many ways, it's like, these guys are astronauts. I mean, it's not unlike going into outer space. You're just, once you're, you know, on this journey in both time periods, ironically, you know, it wasn't like in the more recent race, they had that many more advantages. I mean, they, you know, they certainly had a lot of technological advantages, you know, yeah, <laughs> they, and Kevlar and things like that. Right, but no, there's right. a great quote from Colin in the book where he enters a place he calls the Strudy National Park, which are these huge waves of just ice and snow cut into cut into the land and a storm's coming up. And he realizes that if something happens to him here, a plane can't land. You know, there's there's no flat space for a plane to land. No one can come get him in the storm. And if something happens to him, he's, you know, he's really by himself. That's yeah. you know, no one can go get him. So no, from, and from it's, that aspect, it's just hard. Isolated. Yeah. It's just hard to imagine that, you know, basically today that that is still the case, that there's places you can go on earth where, you know, you're totally on your own. Um, and I'm saying that as a suburban girl, <laughs> you know, I know. And that's, I mean, and you're right. I'm writing this book from, you know, Ohio. So it's incredibly different. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that really captivated me is that, you know, you talked about space and everything, but we're talking on the same planet. Right. This is, I mean, this is, this is incredible. And and I wanted to mention too, because you mentioned outer space that there's another great quote from Lou Rudd. So one of the guys, the other 2018 guy who mentions that fewer people have crossed Antarctica than have walked on the moon. And, and that, that always struck me too, you know, just this idea that there are places on earth that somehow are even more remote seeming than outer space. I, I just, I love that. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, in many ways, it's kind of like um, those guys that go, you know, way down deep in the ocean. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Just these these almost unexplored places, you know, because of just how few people have gone there. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So how long did it take you to research all this? 
Yeah, that's a great question too. So this was, we're talking about first. So this is your first nonfiction podcast and my first podcast. This is also my, this was my uh, debut uh, middle grade nonfiction book. And so I was a little bit surprised by like, oh my goodness, it actually happened much faster than I thought it was going to. So um, from getting the book contract to having a draft into my editor was about nine or 10 months. So all of the research that I did and all of the writing that I did really happened in those months. And it was pretty incredible because the way um, nonfiction works in the publishing world is that you sell it on a proposal. So I didn't write this story with fiction. An author would write a story and hand in basically a completed story to an agent and then an editor. And that's how they would buy the story. With nonfiction, I say, hey, I've got this great idea. Look what's happening right now in Antarctica. Look what happened in 1912. I can make a book out of this. And so my agent said, okay, yes, you can make a book out of this. This sounds good. And then we sold it to an editor who said, oh, yes, this sounds like a great idea. But now I actually have to sit down and write it. And so it was incredible because I started writing this book while the race in 2018 was going on. So I started writing the beginning without knowing how the ending was going on. And there were parts of the proposal where you have to outline the book. And I just say chapter here about who wins the race. And that's, and that's all I could say because, you know, no one knew. And so that was, that was so fun. Um, so I did to circle back to your actual question, the research took about about six months. And then okay. the last three months, I was just editing and revising and, and not doing so much more research after that. So oh, in the writing world, a lot of people are, you know, planners or pantsers. So I'm assuming yes. that you're a planner because you researched and then wrote from an outline. So much. I, I... Oh goodness, I can't imagine doing nonfiction as a pantser. Yeah, I don't think I don't either. I was like, I don't know. I don't know how that would work. (laughs) I don't know either. Um, And I realized we're talking about race, but I just handed in my next book to my editor actually. And for that one, oh goodness, I had not only outlines, but timelines and spreadsheets keeping track of who is where and when. And yeah, no, I'm, I'm very, very much, even when I write fiction, which I've only published nonfiction, but I write fiction for myself. Even then I am very much a plotter. I outline everything. I like to be, I like to know where I'm going. I love maps. Gotta have that. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Did you uh, find anything super interesting when you were researching the first race? Yeah. So I mean, I'm just in love with the original sources. So I'm hoping you said, I put on these white gloves and I went into the secret <laughs> section of the library. I know. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it? No. Um, so researching the first section, uh, the, the 1912 race, it's no secret. Uh, they're, they're all long, long passed away by now. And so really my primary sources were their, their journals and their memoirs, which unfortunately was, was no secret. You can get it yeah. off of Amazon, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and for anyone interested, I actually highly recommend it. They're incredibly interesting. Um, but what happened with the 1912 race is that I had two opposites. These men drove me nuts because they are so opposite in everything, which helped writing the book eventually. But And I think a lot of their opposite personalities come through in the book, but even their primary sources drove me nuts because Amundsen had this wonderful memoir. He has all this self-deprecating humor and he has these fantastic quotes and he's going through and really just making fun of himself. And I laughed quite often reading his memoirs and that was awesome. Scott, on the other hand, was dry and depressing and just, this happened. 
this happened. This happened. <laughs> he doesn't record a lot of his emotions around it. Okay. But on the other hand, he took a photographer with him. So I have this one source where there are all these fantastic pictures and no words. And the other guy who has all of these words and no pictures and fighting to keep them balanced throughout the book was, it was a fight. It was a... Uh, yeah, it's so interesting. And I and I think that um, it's this, you know, it's interesting for kids. And, you know, I guess I'm kind of jumping ahead into the next question. But, mm-hmm. you know, for kids, when they start reading nonfiction, when when you realize that people who lived a long time ago were still very much like we are today, they, you know, you tend to think, oh, it's like, you know, ancient times, you know, the photography was black and white. But, you know, people obviously we're are still people and have their thoughts and and personalities and all that shows you know through in this case their diaries and i wonder if then when when you were researching the actual events could you did you read into it basically because you started to know their personality could you like read into the choices they made yeah, and unfortunately, there um, I, I'm coming at it with bias because I, you know, we have a you have a, <laughs> a wonderful question about spoilers, and I don't know how much I want to spoil about this, but yeah, you know, there there was there's actually a lot of controversy about both races in the 1912 race. As as a reader in the 21st century, I didn't read their primary sources first. And I think I even told you I I first knew about their race from Wikipedia, you know, which right. is you know, biased, even as it tries to be factual. And so I I couldn't necessarily, I'm very aware that I cannot separate myself totally from my backgrounds and what I've read, you know, that, that I always bring a perspective to it. And, and so how much of, that's always hard. I think for me as, as a nonfiction author, how much am I reading myself and my history into into their words and how much I'm trying to unravel what is going on for them. I will say that uh, even even here there's a there's a man in 1912 on Scott's team called Apsley Cherry Gerard, and he came back and wrote a book um, many many years later called The Worst Journey in the World, which actually <laughs> believe it or not does not well it doesn't even refer to going to the South Pole. Oh, he wow. actually there's another part. <laughs> that didn't make it into my book. That is actually, he refers to as the worst journey in the world. And um, yeah, none, none of this sounds comfortable. None of this. Yeah. Sounds great. I would not uh, be a good explorer. No. <laughs> as much as I would like to see Antarctica. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I would I'd like a hot shower with it too, maybe. Yeah. Um, but anyways, even when he writes, he's coming at it from decades later. And so as he was there with Scott, and so his is a primary source, but he's also reading his bias into it. So I, I always feel like this, this, this pool, this tension between what, what I'm trying to uncover and what I'm reading into it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So we're just starting a, a nonfiction roundtable this year. Um, yeah, and- so wonderful. I know. I I had a lot of kids ask for it and I ended up separating it out because, you know, so many kids, it was, you know, it was very split and they had such a great first year and they just, I knew, you know, what kind of books that they liked. Mm 
Yeah. And not all of them were willing. Um, and some wanted nonfiction and some wanted graphic novels. So I ended up splitting into like three groups. So, and some kids are doing all three, which is super funny. So that's yeah. going to be, that's going to be a lot of reading, but good, good for them. I mean, I, I love the idea of kids reading for hours a day. Yeah. Um, but what would you, what advice would you give them, you know, in reading nonfiction versus fiction? Yeah. So knowing that they asked for nonfiction is incredibly encouraging. I love that. That's, that's so wonderful. And I really think we're living in this, I've I've heard it called this golden age of middle grade nonfiction. And, you know, just that wasn't there when I was a kid. Um, I remember getting very frustrated. I remember it was a book about black holes when I was a kid. There was, I was trying to, for some reason, look up black holes at the library and there was a picture book and then there was Stephen Hawking and there was nothing in between. And, you know, and so, and so I really just gave up on nonfiction for decades, you know, until I was, until I came at it as an adult. Um, So that's awesome. I'm so encouraged that they like nonfiction, that they want to be there. The advice that I'd have, um, both for those who are asking for it and, and especially for those that maybe are a little bit more hesitant, is that nonfiction is as wide and open of a field as fiction is. You know, you, you, you don't pick up a mystery, read it, and realize that you maybe hate the book and then give up on fiction. Maybe just mysteries aren't your thing, you know? So, so I'd caution anyone reading nonfiction to not come at it as... I'm reading nonfiction. It's nonfiction is huge. There are yes. all kinds of books. You know, you can you can go down the narrative route and read it like a story. You can read it, you know, just as browsing through, you know, different different types of browsable books or more information-based books. But even with a narrative, like maybe you like the more memoir, maybe you like, you know. Uh, action adventure, like Steve Scheinkin writes, you know, maybe you like more relationship based books, like, um, you know, Deborah, oh, I'm going to mess up this name. Hegelman, 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 I think. Yeah. yeah, Just like Charles and Emma or Vincent and Theo, you know, more about relationships between people. So, so I'd, I'd hesitate to say some advice about reading nonfiction any more than don't treat it any more narrow-mindedly than you would with fiction. You know, you, you allow yourself many, many genres within fiction. Allow yourself that same free range in nonfiction and be free to not like a book, but don't hate all of nonfiction because right. I want Right, so. Yeah. And that is one thing that people are surprised about is that if, you know, my whole policy with the kids is if you don't like the book, like stop reading it. And you can, you know, you can listen in on the discussion and we can discuss why you didn't like it. You know, Um, one book, like I won't say what it was, but we did, we did one book where we like universally all were like, "Eh." and, you know, we dropped it after a week and I just sent them all our replacement. Yeah. You know, it's like, no. and, it's, and, it's, and it's so hard to do because, you know, there, there are books that I've hated reading, but I've grown from too, yeah. you know, so uh, that's, it's, it's, it's hard. And I don't have a clear answer with that, but yeah. just in the way that Amy, you, maybe you have to finish a book you hate, but you can allow yourself to hate it. I think that, I think allowing yourself to dislike a book is much more accepted in fiction than it is in nonfiction. You can hate a nonfiction book. And that's totally fine, but you don't have to hate those whole half of the books that are out there. Yeah, I think that, um, I think maybe kids that are reticent about nonfiction are thinking that it's going to be like a textbook. 
And that's yeah. not nonfiction of yeah. today at all. I mean, like you mentioned um, Vincent and Theo. That, I hate, to, I hate to say it reads like a novel because it's not, do you know what I mean? I'm not saying like, oh, it's just as good as a novel. No. I'm saying that that is an excellent bridge for someone who maybe hasn't read nonfiction. Or is hesitant to, right. you know, there, um, Bill Bryson wrote a great book called A Short History of Nearly Everything. And it's an adult book, but he opens it by saying, you know, he really wanted to learn science as a kid. He wanted to learn, I think this was about the core of the earth. And when he got to that part in school, is all about like apogees and all this really dry nonsense. And he grew up thinking that science is really dull but perhaps it doesn't have to be. I think the phrase he uses, he has a sneaking suspicion that it doesn't have to be. And it's true. You know, people who are reticent, like you said about nonfiction, they've probably had a bad experience with some really dry textbooks in the past. But to, to again, assume that all nonfiction is like that because of one or a handful of experiences is, is sad for me. You know, there, yeah. there's so much, you know, there's Vincent and Theo is excellent. Charles and Emma is wonderful. Bomb, my gosh, kept me up at night. You know, oh, yeah. just, there, there's a wealth of it. Yeah, there's there's so, so many great books. And, you know, I always say that for people, you know, adults and, and kids, you know, if they say, oh, I, I don't know, I don't read much, I don't like reading. And you just haven't found the right book because yeah. there, there are so many books. It's, you know, I think I've said this before. It's some extreme sort of magic that it's so hard to write a book. It's so hard to get your book published, but then there are so many books. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, and that's why, you know, like having your round table groups heavy, like knowing how you were saying you picked your books based on what the kids liked, having that sort of a guide and having someone librarians are, I oh, yeah. have my utmost respect. If you can form a relationship with a librarian who just knows and knows people who knows and can have that type of a book guide, my goodness, that that's, that's a gift. Yeah. I am basically an amateur librarian. <laughs> Didn't really think about it that way before, but yeah, that, that's pretty much what I do. Well, and, and that's, I mean, I think I got very lucky growing up because my mom is an avid reader and she likes kids books, adults books. And so I really had a very, very good guide and, you know, she clearly knew me and, and could point me in the right direction for a lot of books. Yeah, that is, you know, I think that is part of the problem is that we've kind of lost our reading culture, you know, I mean, there are, there's definitely, there is a culture of people who read, but it is not as great as it might have been in years past because, I mean, just because books are competing with a lot of other entertainment sources. Yeah, so. I, I have to admit, I'm probably not the person to ask about this because 90% of my world is books and writing and often. I know, I know. <laughs> Again, I keep using the word bias in this, in this conversation, but yeah, yeah. I'm lopsided on that one. Oh, I know. That's what people say. I can't believe you're on Twitter. And I'm like, oh, I'm only on book Twitter. No, I know. <laughs> like book Twitter is great. I don't know what goes on in the rest of Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I'm even, oblivious. <laughs> even, even, even there. Yep. It's all, it's all authors. It's all publishing and books. Yeah. And, and it's so fantastic for that. So it is. It's like, and that's, you know, and after a while I'm, I'm comfortable with the AI or however it works, you know, just generating what it's sending me because it's doing okay. <laughs> just keep feeding me all this book stuff. I'm good. Um, so what, so you mentioned that, you know, you are also a reader 
Have you ever gotten reader's block? I find that when I do, um, reading nonfiction breaks me out of it. Yeah, no, I've absolutely gotten that. And I love the phrase reader's block because you do, right? I mean, even, even as much as I read and I read a ton, sometimes you feel like you just can't find that book. You can't find anything. And like you, I'm a big fan of not finishing. Life is too short to go through an awful book. You know, just put it down, walk away, go find something new. But when that happens over and over and over again, you know, I've never thought of it. That is reader's block. Um, and when you and I were chatting, Jen, before the podcast, I think I mentioned that there were, there was, there was a period of um, three or four years, honestly, there was a lot going on in my life and big changes and everything, but I really couldn't find any fiction that I could get into. It all seems a little bit too intense, a little bit too, a little bit too much of an overload for me. And I did, I just spent all of those years reading nonfiction, adult, middle grade, you know, young adult, everything, everything in between. I wasn't, so from that perspective, I've, I've never thought of it like that before, but you are absolutely right. Nonfiction. And I wonder why, I don't know. I don't have a great answer for why, but I absolutely agree that when I was having a fiction reader's block, it was nonfiction that filled that for me. That brought me back to reading. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's another aspect of reader's block that I've gotten where if I finish a book that I absolutely adore, I get kind of a, a state where I don't want to start anything else because I'm not ready to let that out yeah. of the space in my mind. Yeah. And then especially if I've read something fictional, then nonfiction helps then too, because it's just a, I don't know if I'm processing it with the other side of my brain, but it's, you know, it's like I can read the nonfiction and then, you know, go back into something else because it's been a long enough time. Yeah, I don't know. That would be really interesting yeah. to think about someone probably more experienced than me about it, about how that works, about how processing the brain, because I absolutely feel that too. Although I'm willing to admit that after I finish a book that I really, really got into, I'll just mope for a few days. Yeah. So. Don't you? I know I do that too. <laughs> no. And, and, and unfortunately I've made my hobby into a business. So sometimes I don't have time to yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, all right. But then, you know, that's the whole thing. Um, you know, people say, oh, you know, how can you love every, every book, you know, that you have on the podcast? And I'm like, well, because I mean, I, if I didn't like the book at all, I wouldn't have it on the podcast. I mean, that's easy. It's an easy mm -hmm. fix, but generally I'm a reader and I, I don't know. I just, I can find something you know, something good and pleasant. And I'm just happiest when I'm, you know, in the middle of a book. And so I want to get back to where I'm in the middle of a book again. Yeah. Yeah. So. That story. And, and again, I think nonfiction for me, when I can combine this story with something learning about my world, you know, or exposing me to, I don't know, I think even fiction will do that, that the best fiction really teaches you something about mm -hmm. the world you live in, you know, even if it's fantasy or something like that, not, not necessarily our world. I think it teaches us something. And I think fiction, nonfiction perhaps does that just a little bit more straightforwardly. So maybe it's, so maybe yeah, just, it is. The it's, lesson yeah, from it's, it is a little bit more obvious. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So now we're at the, the, the bonus question. <laughs> Do you want to talk about your spoiler first? Well, I, if that's okay. So I guess that's yeah. the big warning. I mean, not a huge, right? I mean, you don't have to spoil like, um, you know, 
anything no, huge. But. That's, uh, let's see here. I like, think, yeah. So was, for, I'm not going to say who won the 2018 race, even okay. though honestly, if you Google it, that, that's, that's easy. That's the problem about nonfiction, right? Anyone right. can go and just Google it. Uh, for 1912, though, the spoiler there, again, which anyone could really find out 30 seconds online, is that Scott not only reaches the South Pole second, but he and his whole team die on the way back. And so that, um, uh, and that, that was a little bit difficult to write, especially keeping middle graders in mind. You know, when, when my friends with children read the book, I tend to warn them, you know, like, especially if their kid is young on the, on the, you know, just entering the middle grade reading levels and things like that. In chapter 11 can be a little bit intense. And so maybe, maybe that's one to partner read with a parent or something like that. Or maybe yeah. just overly sensitive. Or if you have a, a sensitive kid, maybe wait a couple yeah. of years. Yeah, just say, you know, Scott dies. <laughs> I know. Surprise that. Or that as, as a younger middle grader, I would have had a very difficult time with that. Um, and so knowing my audience, knowing me at that age and, and knowing who I am writing for, um, that, that was actually very difficult to write. Plus, I mean, besides from the fact that, of course, he writing about death is always difficult, but knowing that I was going to put my reader through that was, was hard. Yeah, but gosh, I yeah. don't know. I'm, I'm all a realist. I'm all like, life is hard. Yeah. Sorry, you, certainly, you certainly can't tell the story without it. And, no. and that becomes a lot of the controversy is that even though Amundsen got there first, you know, who is the hero? Um, and I think that plays into a lot of it. I think that's the central question of the book, really. It's that the obvious thing is that it's a race, but the larger question, and this absolutely applies, this might even apply more to 2018 than 1912, but is who do we choose to be our hero? Is it the person who reaches first or are there other characteristics about someone that make them more heroic? Um, so, you know, especially in light of this Instagram culture, you know, social media yeah. and everything, um, we, we get to decide who are our heroes. And the overriding, I think, lesson or truth about the book is that looking closely, examining who you're lauding and why is perhaps not easy, but it is necessary. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Was there anything then that you edited out of the book? I mean, yeah. you couldn't edit out death. So. <laughs> no, no, I couldn't. As, as uh, I, I will get back to your question in a second, but as hard yeah. as I tried to, just to, this death of Scott was so hard. I have a wonderful critique partner, my a good friend, Tracy, and at first when I wrote the death, I basically just said he died. And Tracy's like, no, no, you actually have to write about it. And I came back and wrote a little bit more. And she's like, no, no, you still, you really actually have to address this. And I just, oh, man, that was very <laughs> difficult for me to write. I know exactly. Like that was pretty much, I didn't want to deal with it. You know, like I, and I didn't want my readers to have to deal with it. Um, but I did not get to edit out that part. No. And editing out, there were really... Uh, two big things. My editor and I went back and forth about how much to include about Antarctic geography. Okay. Um, because a lot about what constitutes Antarctica, which writing from, you know, Ohio, I don't know, wherever the state line is that they tell me to, right? Yeah. But Antarctica gets a little bit fuzzy because there's so much ice that extends out past the actual rock that makes up maybe the landmass and do you call it the landmass or Antarctica. And so there's a lot about that and a lot about geography. 
that we actually ended up editing out quite a bit. We kept in just enough to perhaps create some of the the controversy that ends up going on in 2018. But uh, a lot of that got taken out. Very, very rightly so. I totally agree with Brian, my editor, on that one. But before he actually saw the book, and I think, mm. and I think I alluded to this idea of the worst journey in the world not actually being the journey to the South Pole, because Scott's team really had had a very, very difficult time right from the get go, and their first depot laying trip. So the summer before they go on a race, they lay all these depots. They go, they make this big journey out and then they come back and they're leaving food along the way. And perhaps this is a spoiler, but it's right in the middle of the book. It does not go well for them. And I kept in that it does not go well for them. And many of their animals die. The men are fine, but many of the animals die. What I edited out is just how dramatically the animals perish because it, again, has a lot to do with Antarctic geography and they end up on the sea ice and the sea ice breaks and there are men and ponies trapped on these floating ice flows. And if that wasn't bad enough, they're then attacked by killer whales. I mean, so they spend this just harrowing night on floating around on sea ice, literally trying to you know stay afloat and keep these whales away. And then when they finally make it back to land, they're trapped in this old cabin. They can't, because the sea ice has broken up, they can't make it back to their original camp for months. I mean, it is, it's pretty bad. That's um, really bad. I mean, can you imagine being on that trip? Just thinking, I mean, if it starts going really bad right away, wouldn't you just keep wanting to turn around? I mean, just their, their yeah. motivation must've been extremely high. <laughs> Yeah. And then to see that they keep taking all these chances because Scott took, I think it's 60 men in his crew and all 60 men knew that there were only going to be four that made the final push to the South pole. And so less than 10% of the men from the crew are going to get to be with Scott. And so this entire first year there in Antarctica, they're all trying to outdo each other to try and go from these bad conditions to even worse conditions with Scott. So yeah. not only are they not saying, I want to go home. They're like, no, no, please may I have it worse. Like <laughs> I have a, I, I suppose I have respect for that. I have, yeah. um, I have narrative respect for that. I think it makes a good story, but you do kind of wonder I wonder what's going on in their personal lives that although I really <laughs> I like to see Antarctica, I also would not want to die. So, no, exactly. You know, exactly. it's a balance. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's I guess that's story, a deep question for probably yeah, not exactly. for middle graders. <laughs> probably not on a podcast. I know we could. I know. <laughs> we just try to solve all the world's problems here. Exactly. In, in, in one podcast session. One I know. podcast. One podcast at a time. I do what I can. <laughs> so I hope you brought me some um, book recommendations. Yes, I do. I love, honestly, I love middle grade. That is just such a, such a gold mine of books. Um, and I did, I kept mine, I kept mine. Uh, all right. Few book recommendations. And I think okay. I saw it on your list of nonfiction that you're reading next year is meltdown, earthquake, yes. tsunami, and nuclear disaster in Fukushima. I just finished that one. And wow, I was blown away. I thought that was, I thought that was well done. And 
it was history that I'd lived through. So when I was thinking about this, I was like, oh, kind of like, you know, all 13 where everyone remembers the news. And then I realized, wait, that was 10 years ago. And even your middle graders who are alive then probably don't remember it. <laughs> so I know added, added, added a little bit to my age there. But I do think that was wonderful and certainly very recent history like that, that they can probably relate to. And, and you know, wow, just the, just the decisions that were being made, the heroism of the people involved were, was pretty incredible to read about. Yeah. And then from a fiction perspective, I'm in the middle of City Spies by James Ponty right now, and I'm just having a blast with that. It is um, maybe quite a bit light, more lighthearted than Meltdown, <laughs> but, but there are good contrasts to each other. So Yeah, um, I read City Spies, and now the, the second one is out, but I haven't had any time to pick it up yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit, writing, writing books is weird because I tend to be so oblivious to everything else that's going on outside of my little focus. You know, like I said, I, I wrote all of Race to the Bottom of the Earth in about nine or 10 months. So I didn't really read anything else for those nine or 10 months, which I admittedly was a mistake. I did that differently the second time around. But, you know, I end up focusing so much that it's really only once I come kind of like take this deep breath after after I'm finished writing that I kind of have to like do all this catch up and and try and read what's come out. Um, I picture you you crawling out of a cave and your hair is all messed up. (laughs) You're all like, what year is it? (laughs) What year is it? How many cups of coffee have I had? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yep. So it is fun though. And both of those books are highly, uh, I wouldn't want to say highly entertaining. That's certainly the wrong, the wrong emotion with meltdown, but immersive, I think is probably the right word. That's a good word. Yeah. Yeah, and City Spies is both a mystery and I would say a comedy because I laughed a lot. I did laugh a lot. Yeah, and I like I said, I'm only I'm only about halfway through that right now. But the the introduction of the I don't know head spy, their leader, yeah, a guy named Mother. I was just like, oh well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that factors into the mystery at all because uh, I'm not there yet. But uh, yes, no, definitely, I'm laughing a lot reading that, and totally recommend it so far. Yeah. So did we, did we think of anything else? I think we covered everything. I think we covered everything. Um, I would, nothing left. <laughs> we really did solve all the world's problems. I know. One podcast. We're so good. I know it. Why didn't people I, ask us sooner? I know. If only they knew. But yeah. no, I really, I really hope that your middle graders enjoy nonfiction. I hope that they want to continue with it even if they don't like a book. Yeah, and maybe I will, I haven't figured out what month we're reading what yet, but maybe I'll hit you up. You can uh, drop in on our Zoom call that would if you be want. Fantastic. I'm, and for, for any listeners that are open for this, I'm of course always, if a class or homeschool group reads race, I'm always up for you know a Skype Q&A. That's awesome. absolutely available for that. And Writing is actually incredibly isolating. You know, for the most part, it's me, my books, and my computer. Um, so talking to readers, talking to you with your podcast is really, really, really great to, to connect with people. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. I loved having you. I'm so happy that we finally, you know, got you on here and uh, we've got our, you know, we've broken the ice with, with nonfiction. So hopefully we'll get some other authors to follow you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. This was 
fantastic. It's so fun to talk about books, to talk about nonfiction. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I uh, love, love the idea of discussion groups. So I hope this helps. I hope this, your, uh, your discussion groups enjoy this too. Thanks. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at bookish underscore society and on Twitter at bookish society. And of course, on our website, thebookishsociety.com. Thanks again to Chris Rieger for his audio engineering magic. 